Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this week on LGBTQ&A, I'm talking to Connor Habib. Connor is in porn, and I wanted to talk to him because I think about sex a lot. Not just having sex, but stigmas around it about who we're attracted to, who we're not attracted to, including being attracted to different shaped bodies and gender non-conforming bodies. Also, I think about what dictates sexual preference, as well as our capacity to expand those preferences. So this conversation provides no answers for any of that, but it does hopefully shed a small light. So all that's coming up. We should say, too, that if you like our show even a little bit, please subscribe on iTunes. Subscribing, ranking us five stars, and leaving a comment on iTunes is one of the biggest ways new people can find our show. So big thanks for that. And then, as always, don't forget to check out our old home at AfterBuzz TV. They are the number one place for all your TV talk needs. All right, without further ado, here's Connor. I don't actually know the proper lingo. I called you an adult film performer. Mm. Is it adult film? Is this a porn? Porn constellation will do just Constellation. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Is there like one way of saying it or no? No, I mean, porn star, adult performer, it doesn't matter. I mean, it depends on the context. Like if you want to, if you're like going to court and talking to OSHA about safety regulations, you say adult performer, but you know, cause you don't want to scare them, but normally porn star is just fine. Okay, perfect. Cool. <laughs> or a porn performer. I didn't know if like one had like a nasty connotation that you should avoid. Well, adult performer does sound a little bit like you're going to a kid's birthday party and juggling dildos, but like it's fine. Do, do you find that with the younger generations, there there's less of a stigma like around it in general? I just don't think it should be something that me or anyone else should be afraid to talk about. Well, yeah, I mean, I I hope so. <laughs> there, there are probably different kinds of stigmas I would say that are showing up. I don't know what those are yet, but we know. Some so little about how younger people are responding to sex and everybody wants to jump the gun and say, Oh, they're learning bad things from porn or, you know, they're, they're just getting inundated with sexual images and all that kind of stuff. And all that really means is that older people are afraid now that younger people know more about sex than they do. So it's like, you know, I didn't, I don't know if the stigma has dimmed or not. I don't think anybody really knows. I know that, like, for my small focus group of my friends, when I said I'm interviewing a porn star, no one had a bad reaction. The only reaction was, oh, who? Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, and then you said my name, and they said, who? And then, <laughs> no. Uh, have you always been, like, a sexual person and enjoyed yeah. it? Really? Yeah. I mean, it was no, you know, like, when I told my sister that I was doing porn, for example, she was like, huh, that's, like, the exact right job for you. You know? I mean, anybody that knew me well knew that I was just a very sexual person anyway, and that I was, and then that is, I mean, like, everybody, it's a big part of my personality, but I didn't try to hide it away ever that was just me you know okay yeah and i I think there'd be like an issue if you did go into this thinking i can't let anybody ever know yeah i mean some people still do that which i think is pretty foolish (laughs) but yeah (laughs) yeah but i mean most people i think now you know they get the gist that you know there's no keeping this under wraps if you do it you know yeah yeah, I, I like that you picked the name Connor Habib and you kept the Middle Eastern uh-huh. heritage in there. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm half Irish and half Middle Eastern, so that was the, oh really? Yeah, so Connor Habib worked out. How did you pick those two? Well, Connor was the name of uh, so I was I was at a 
pub drinking for the first time in my life. I was 15. I was in Ireland. And there were like, and I wasn't out yet. And there were two guys like sort of play gay, dry humping each other. And one of them kept going, oh, Connor, Connor. And like, I'm like going crazy because I can't say anything to anybody. And like sparks are like shooting out of my, you know, brain. And I'm like, okay. So that burned uh, that name into my brain forever. And then Habib, like Habibi or Habibi means uh, beloved or sweetheart in Arabic, basically. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what do your friends call you? Do they call you Connor? Yeah, every, I'm almost, almost everybody calls me Connor now. And that is, that's my doing mostly. Like, my birth name's Andre. Like, it just sort of faded out because I started writing under the name Connor, doing all my sort of public stuff and lectures under Connor. So everything just sort of turned into this because I want to consolidate because it's confusing, you know? Yeah. Um, but, I mean, there are people in my life that don't call me Connor, mostly who knew me before, you know? Okay. Yeah. Is, does it create, like, an alter ego? Like, is that important? No. I, you know, some people play it that way. Some porn performers... Porn performers, see, that's what I said this time. <laughs> some porn stars play it that way. Um, for me, the really important thing was to just integrate everything. So, no, there's not really a split, you know? I okay. just try to be myself. I mean, if anything... Um, you know, when that sort of liminal zone was happening, when I, before like everybody started calling me Connor, I would regard Connor probably as like the braver version of myself because it was like, oh, you're the one that goes and does the shit that he says he's going to do, you know? So hopefully I've caught up and earned the name a little more. Yeah. Uh, so to do porn, I assume that you think you're good at sex. <laughs> right? You want to say great? What adjectives we use? <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe. Um, maybe you think you're maybe. good. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. So maybe good isn't quantifiable. Uh-huh. So I wonder, like, why you think you've been successful. <laughs> um, why have I been successful? It's a funny question because I don't always think of myself as successful. Um, not in a bad way. I just don't... You know, I'm just, just not going through my head sure. quite so much. Um, I mean, I think... Um, especially when I started, I looked different than everybody else. So, I mean, I started in 2007, I think. So, um, yeah, I think 2007, right at the end. And, um, most people who are doing sort of more studio, like bigger gay studio porn, they didn't look like me. Um, they look still in this sort of nineties mode. A lot of them were hairless, had sort of perfect, what we call perfect bodies where they have, you know, six pack abs, all that kind of stuff. And I just had more of a normal body. I mean, I was in shape, but I had more of a normal sort of like average kind of body. But, um, I think that people were really sick of this standardization, you know, and they wanted something different. And so I think having had that moment, um, showing up at that moment in porn was pretty good. Like that went really well for me. But I also think, I mean, the thing that people say to me all the time is that I, I seem to enjoy it. So some of that is just performing. So that just means I'm a good performer. I'm like, act like it's yeah. just like some, you know, Kate Blanchett shit. Like I'm just acting, you know, and I'm like <laughs> at the top of my game, but the you know, Kate some, Blanchett of porn. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, um, but some of it is that like, yeah, I'm really, I really enjoy, I really enjoy doing it. So. So, so, give me a percentage. What percentage of scenes do you shoot where you think, okay, well, I'm not attracted to this person, but I got to fake it? Huh. Well, I would never fake it. Um, what, what you do is you find a way in. So um, I, 
you know, I mean, people tend to think, I think this is a thing that messes people up sexually all the time. Like, like, oh, I got to have chemistry. I have to be like attracted to someone. There has to be intimacy. It's like, those are things you create. Those aren't things that are inherent in the situation. Now, sometimes it just shows up because of your upbringing, all the, like, all the things that have happened in your life that have sort of created your weird, personal, unique matrix of desire, right? But I think people who are sex workers um, in any field who are good, they create their own intimacy. So intimacy is a personal thing. You go in, you show up, you find a way in. How am I going to create intimacy with this person and chemistry with this person? And then you do it. And when, when, what are the things you're finding? Is it like a feature or like a characteristic? Or like- could be. could be a lot of things. It could be, you know, I mean, I did a scene where... <laughs> early on now this was someone that i was sort of naturally attracted to but he was a little distant you know so like we started talking about buffy the vampire slayer and i was in you know i was like all right let's do this you know and it and it like created a bond and a closeness between us or sometimes it can just be yeah i mean i can just be looking at a certain part of their body or imagining what their face is going to look like or whatever you know interesting yeah um you wrote somewhere that doing porn has created a sense of detachment around your own sexuality. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. That's one of the best things about doing porn is, um, I mean, people are so reflexive about sex. I I like this. I don't like this. I'm not into that. You know, like people get really worked up about this kind of stuff. And it's like when you do porn, if you do it well and you do it in a healthy way, it starts to sort of pull you away from your preferences and you get to actually just sort of enter in freely without all those stakes and all that sort of tenseness about like, I don't like this. I like this. I don't, don't." you know, it's like, I think that attachment to preference is something really damaging to people's sexualities. You know, it's why people get away with saying things like, I'm just not attracted to black guys. And it's like, it's just a preference. It's like, no, that's like, (laughs) the preference is still not correct. (laughs) Like stop being, the preference might be there inculcated by culture, but you can, address and detach yourself from your preference, you know? And that, I think, is like, once that starts happening, all kinds of new experiences start to come to you, and all sorts of experiences and different ways of seeing the world can come to you. So it's why I think porn, many porn performers, they might have that, the sexual racism is a good um is a good example. They might start only liking one kind of person, and then after a while, that sort of loosens up, and they begin to be able to be more attracted to more kinds of people. So, so how do you differentiate between a like unproductive preference that is built from a prejudice or something else and just what you're into or not into? Um, I mean, I think they're all probably unproductive. So, <laughs> or like, I think they're, uh, here's the thing. It's like, they're all fine and they're all bad. The thing that makes it so is your intense attachment to them. So that's why I say the detachment is is the healthy thing. It's like um, now that I'm not telling people to let go of their preferences. You know, no one has a right to tell you to give up your preference. But you also have and boundaries are there, and no one has a right to push your boundary for you. But if you're not investigating your own boundaries and preferences and all that, you're kind of like losing out on life, I think, and losing out on possibility and sex and all that. So this is must have drastically changed your relationship to sex in your personal life. Yeah, it, it changed it in a lot of ways, um, mostly positive ways. I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the things, it's this preference thing. It's like, you know, guys have this, like, <laughs> if you're ever at a gay bar and, like, 
some dude with like giant biceps and like big pecs and he's like six five like walks in and everybody does what i call the prairie dog where they all look you know like they all look over at once you know they're so in tune to that moment you know because it's this reflexive cultural thing oh that's who we're supposed to be attracted to at a certain point i was like oh i I get paid to have sex with people that look like that like and that just fell away all the social shit and then i started seeing the people that started seeing other people that I was attracted to and who I might be sort of uh, now allowing myself to be drawn to, now being more honest about it. Oh, wow. So if you don't have a stigma against porn, though, how do you weigh, like, dating someone that does? If you don't... Oh. (laughs) Because I'm I'm guessing that not everyone's as, like, okay with it as you are. Well, yeah. I mean, people, people are all at their own sort of levels with it, you know? I mean, I think the important thing is... Again, I guess it's an attachment thing. It's like, it's more important that the person is willing to sort of work on it, hear you out, be there present with you and like move forward than it is like that they're in not the most accepting place, you know? Yeah. I think that one of the biggest surprises of my 20s was like my evolving view on monogamy. Uh I'm not able to articulate exactly what I think and I'm okay with that, but I'm able to like have a conversation with somebody that I'm dating and say like, let's figure out what we're comfortable with. Right. Has your view on monogamy changed and do you find other people's opinions can? I mean, I've been in monogamous relationships, um, but a long time ago. So, I mean, I was like 19, 20, you know what I mean? So it's, uh, so, um, do I find do I, are you asking me do I think it's changing culturally or do I find it in individuals I'm, what do you, do you I'm, I'm finding um, like in terms of monogamy or in terms of like the stigma against porn and dating somebody in porn are do people have the capacity to grow and change yes oh 100% yeah I mean I see it in lots of people I mean you said it yourself and I think our culture is happily sort of reevaluating monogamy I mean the real reasons for that one, it's just that people are living longer. So it's like, till death do us part is a lot longer. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, when that, when that code was sort of invented, we were living, you know, like we we're like death at 50. It's like pretty easy. Well, I'll just hold out till I die, you know, and then I get to have sex with virgins in heaven or whatever. But now it's like, oh, I got to hold out like 60 years, 70 years. I don't know. So I think that's part of it. But I also think it's, um, you know, I think heterosexual people especially are be- becoming more open to it. I think, unfortunately, it might be that gay people are going the other way and conservatizing a bit more after sort of gay marriage has really permeated gay culture. But we'll see how that pans out. I mean, it'll take a while to see where that all lands. Yeah. I, I never thought about it, too. I guess by, like design if you're in porn you're like quote-unquote not being monogamous right right so that's got to create something and like your partner if you're not right yeah i mean some guys have like what they call porn porn monogamous i don't know exactly how you say but pornogamous where it's like they just they only do stuff with other people on their scenes you know because that might not be threatening to someone that they're in the relationship with you know whereas uh, other kinds of sex but then there's the opposite too where a partner might have felt fine about an open relationship but not the fact that everybody can see their partner having sex so yeah yeah i mean there are those complications i mean honestly i think people need to just get over it but (laughs) that's that's it's a process for everybody you know i have my own process get over what that you do porn or that porn exists well no i mean like being in relationships with people who like are sex workers or want to do 
you know, or, or want to have sex with other people, you know? I mean, I think monogamy is like the most widespread perversion in our culture and that's fine, but like just recognize that it's a perversion and enjoy it, you know, <laughs> like instead of pretending that there's something no more noble about it than anything else. Instead of like putting shame on it too. Yeah, exactly. Oh, fascinating. I wrote down some stereotypes about porn. Okay. <laughs> I just want to go through them just because yeah. um, there are like misconceptions and maybe they're not even misconceptions. So, so feel free to elaborate. A lot of guys are also rent boys and like hire escorts. Yeah, I mean, we'll probably find that with some of these stereotypes that I mean, <laughs> you know, stereotypes that, that exist because stereotypes exist. Yeah, because people have people have noticed or observed something. Yeah, I think a lot of porn performers are escorts. Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, sex workers do. If you have a skill to do one kind of sex work, you might be good in another kind of sex work. It's like if you are, you know, a banker, you might be a good bank manager. You okay. know, <laughs> like if I play classical piano, I might play jazz. Exactly. You gotcha. might learn it. I mean, there are different skills, like you're oh, saying, yeah. but yeah. Oh, okay, great. I've heard a lot that many straight men do gay porn because it pays better. Yeah. Um, well, b- gay porn does pay better for most men than straight porn does. But, um, you know, I mean, it, it's an interesting question. I mean, they, they, they're they identified as straight and people like to say, oh, well, they're just gay. But I think sexuality is a lot more complicated than that. And it just goes to show that straight and gay are really stupid labels for people, you know? Yeah. No no offense to the LGBTQNA um, <laughs> title of the show, but these labels are not, you know, they're, they're just approximations. I mean, they are themselves stereotypes. Yeah. Yeah. That porn performers do not hook up with people outside of porn because of the fear of STDs. No. no, that that I can tell you, and I don't even know I how that would have been observed. I was told that by a from the the mouth of the dragon by a straight female performer. Well, that's wishful thinking on her part. Okay. I mean, some some maybe she's lying. Yeah, <laughs> she might have been lying to protect herself. And her or name what? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean. Uh, I mean, there is certainly if it, the thing about straight porn is, and it's different than gay porn is, a lot of those straight porn performers have scenes like three or four days a week, so that's a lot more content. So when are they going to have the time? And also, like, it is a little more um, risky for them to have extra, you know, off-scene sex if they're shooting that often, you know, because you have to keep getting tested. This rigid testing schedule for most straight porn studios. So it's like I think. That might have been her experience. That's not... I mean, gay gay porn stars don't shoot that much, you know, for the most part. Oh, really? Yeah. What, how often would it be in a month? In a month? Um, I mean, at the height of my... At the height of my porn making, I was... Uh, I think I did, like, seven in a month, you know? So that's not a lot, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's still a lot. And, you know, I've done, like, two in a day sometimes. But it's it's just not... You know, it's just not as big of an industry. So for like a 20 to 30 minute scene, how long is that shoot? Anywhere between four and 12 hours, you know? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the studio. I find that the people, the directors that are more, the more talented the director is, the uh, shorter the shoot is because they're confident, they're secure. They don't need to like worry about getting a million different angles and then like having their talented editor get it down, you know? Okay. Are, are yeah. you still performing? Um, sort of. I mean, I did, I don't do it that much. I did a, 
uh, three scenes uh, a few weeks ago, right? Now, I mean, you can see me now. I mean, I'm not, I'm not in a porn body, quote unquote. But I, you know, there's a director named Joe Gage who, whenever he wants me to work for him, I'll work for him because I think he's like a genius. So he's very creative, very um, intense, brilliant person, and he's been making porn since the late '70s. So I, whenever he asks me, I'm going to go do it. You know, so yeah. I'm never going to retire quote-unquote, it's always something that I'd like to be able to do. Okay, yeah. What, what is it about these films that like make him genius? With him, well, so he's been doing all sorts of things. So his early films had this sort of weird psychedelic vibe, you know, and they're just unclassifiably bizarre if you watch some of them. Um, so just look up his name and just go sort of earlier in the catalog. The later ones, they're all scripted, and a lot of it is just based around tension. So with him, we end up filming dialogue for like th- three hours, and then the sex lasts like forty minutes. You know, it's like it's very wow. quick because he really puts a lot of the sexuality and like the intensity of his scenes into the setup. Wow. Yeah. You mentioned your body earlier. Yeah. Is there a lot of pressure to like maintain, or was there? Oh, there was. Yeah. I mean, now there's not anymore. You know, because I just don't care. Um, but. I mean, I, th- I sometimes I say I'm a gay porn star trapped in a straight porn star's body. <laughs> Not, I mean, some some straight porn stars have like six packs and all that kind of stuff too. But I, I mean, I think it's like um, there's a there's a whole um, when you're in it a whole sort of inner idea of body dysmorphia and shame and all that kind of stuff that can really get to you if you're not if you don't have a really stable sort of sense of self, right? And I would go in and out of that. So sometimes I would feel totally great. And other times, you know, like I look back on some of my pictures where I have a six pack and I'm like, I thought I was fat when I did that shoot. You know, I was like freaking out about how fat I was for that shoot. And I have a six pack. Like, what was I worried about? Also, like the camera is literally all around you. There's Mm -hmm. not like a better angle. You could stand that. You're not wearing like a shirt to hide something. Right. Although that's a trick that they do sometimes. If someone shows up and they don't have like the best body, like they'll be like, just pull your dick out of your pants or whatever. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All these tricks. Yeah. (laughs) I I was curious to read that you are, you're about your like religion. Uh huh. You're fairly firm in your faith. Is that still current? Yeah. Well, I mean, my faith is weird, but firm. Yes. Um, (laughs) I I, I asked because Mm. you're teaching a new course on the occult. Yeah. I want to know how those blend. Yeah. So I, um, I was raised a-religiously, so I was not, I had the um, good fortune of not being violated by religion like a lot of people do, uh, or like a lot of people are. I mean, you know, and then they grow up and they just have to crawl out of the wound, you know, and I don't, I didn't have to. My mother was raised by religious fundamentalists. My father's from a village in the mountains in Syria and didn't have a strong religious background, you know, Um, so you know, I was taken to churches as a kid and like, do you like this? Do you like this? You know, what do you think? And I was like, oh, I'm kind of bored, you know, but I, but I was always drawn to it on my own. So I got to explore and understand it on my own. So that's a gift. It's a real, it's a real gift. It's like having a good childhood, right? I mean, which in a lot of ways I didn't, but in that aspect of my childhood, I had a great childhood. You know, it's like when you hear people, it's like, oh, my parents never fought. You're like, what? what? <laughs> you know, so that's my version of that. I just had a healthy relationship to religion as, as a kid, you know, and spirituality. So, um, yeah, so I developed it, you know, over time and I went through all sorts of stuff and sort of landed in this place with something called anthroposophy, which is this sort of, 
uh, esoteric occult Christianity that was uh, founded in the late 19th, early 20th century, but really is connected to all these other streams of esoteric Christianity. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, you don't go to church and you don't, you know, I mean, it's like, imagine if Christianity actually did what it said it's supposed to do. That's kind of what anthroposophy is, you know? Okay. Yeah. So is there like a daily practice? Are there holidays? Like, how's that? <laughs> no, it's not a religion. I mean, that's the thing. It's not, oh, okay. it's, it's, it's a way, uh, anthroposophists actually have a very difficult time expressing what this is. I mean, it's sort of just a way of being in the world. Um, so you, there's no dogma, there's no holy book, there's no, you know, I mean, there's not, there's barely a concept of God, actually. Um, there's all sorts of other occulty stuff about angels and heavenly hierarchies and all that kind of stuff. But there's no, there's the, the talk about God is actually kept to a minimum. And there are no, sure, there are holidays, but they're, they're holidays that already existed. You know, there might be an emphasis on, like, there's an emphasis on this holiday called Michael Moss, which is existed before anthroposophy and people who aren't you know, anthroposophists celebrate this. But, Michael Moss? Yeah. So it's in September and it's a celebration of the Archangel Michael, right? So oh. th- it's like this and it's the turning of a season as well. So there's that kind of stuff, but it's like if you don't celebrate those, nobody cares. I mean, and there's no central, there's no central uh, organization. I mean, there are centers, you know, where people can go, sure, but there's no like this is the decree, you know, there's no dogma. What is the word one more time? <laughs> it's anthroposophy. So it's set up by this guy named Rudolf Steiner. So anthroposophy. Yeah. So the divine feminine wisdom of man. So if you, if you have ever heard of Waldorf schools or biodynamic farms, like if you've ever had biodynamic wine, those were both invented by the same guy, Rudolf Steiner, who created anthroposophy. Or um, if you have community shared agriculture, he created that, basically created that as well. Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring and did the DDT ban, was highly influenced. Um, there are a lot of people in her, you know. So is your interest in the cult a part of anthroposophy, or is it separate? It precedes it, but it's definitely, that's the that's my home base for that stuff. Okay. So, like, when I need my vocabulary, that's where I go to. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. When, this course that you're teaching, I yeah. saw, what, what is it about the occult that you're teaching? So It's like a 101? You no, know, it's, well, so it's about how the occult intersects with postmodern philosophy. Postmodern philosophy is just my really broad term to describe philosophy that basically during and after World War II, so Western, Western thought basically after and during World War II. So, the, you know, these people who are just incomprehensibly difficult, you know, on both sides, the occultists are also very hard and, I mean, it's called the occult, you know, it's an occlusion. It's difficult for people to understand. So, um, and how those two sort of become understandable through each other in a way, but people who are occultists mostly aren't reading postmodern philosophy. People who are postmodern philosophers, certainly academics, don't give shit about the occult. So it's like, to me, that made them more understandable. Okay. Was there ever any worry that your porn career would overshadow or negate your like intellectual pursuits? <laughs> Well, that I mean, it's part of why I did porn, ultimately. It was like, I was teaching at University of Massachusetts and Western New England College. Um, I was teaching English and literature and writing. And I just thought, you know, if I don't do something to mess this up, I'm going to get a job as a professor, like full-time job as a professor, get tenure, and then die. It's like, you know, like people were like, get married, have kids, die, you know? And so I was like, I better really mess this up. So 
um, I did something and I thought, you know, for porn was like, I mean, I wanted to do porn earlier, you know, but the things we want to do in our lives for a long time, the reasons for them change, you know? And so at that point it was like, what's the thing I can do that's going to mess everything up, throw a wrench in the gears and screw up my future so that I have to be awesome if anybody's ever going to take me seriously again. Now I'm still working on the awesome um, <laughs> and I'm still working and, it, and there's this constant you know, stigma in culture. Like people always want me to write about the same things or talk about the same thing, you know, so I have to like keep getting up on my own two feet and be like, no, I did this and I do this, you know, and they're all part of me and they're not separate. They're all, you know, they all meet in me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When you did make the decision to do porn, what was the next step? Like, there's not just like a number you call and say like, I'm ready. Like, yeah. how does that go? Well, there are numbers you call and you just say, I'm ready. I mean, basically what people do really? now. Yeah. Well, it's not a phone number, but right. it's like, <laughs> and that number is, no, it's like, um, you just send your photos into a porn studio. You know, I mean, most studios have a thing on their website that says become a model. So you just go on the site and you send your photos in. And it's an application. It's like a job application. That's so easy. Yeah. It's so easy. And so, <laughs> I mean, it, they have to like you and they have to call you. And sometimes you have to be persistent. And if they reject you, you might try again in a, you know, a few months or like a year and you send it out to a lot of studios or whatever. But for me, it actually didn't go that way. For me, I was cast in a commercial right after I moved to San Francisco and the director's of that commercial on the porn studio. And I'd wanted to be in porn since I was a little kid. So I, um, since I was probably in middle school and, and they were like, have you ever thought about being in porn? And I said, have I ever not thought about being in porn? And then it just sort of took off from there. Why did you, I don't in some sort of like, why join in porn? But like, was it like the subversive nature of it that attracted you? Hmm. Well, that was definitely part of it. Like I said, the reasons sort of change and move around in your life, you know, um, when I was younger, the cool kids were talking about porn, you know, I mean, with some shame and some he he he, but like, and I wanted to be what the cool kids were talking about. So there was that, you know, also I saw porn and I was like, why, like, that's a job. Like, why wouldn't everybody do that? That makes zero sense to me that people wouldn't just, that's like the best thing ever, you know? And then you know, as you, as I got older, yeah, there was this sort of subversive aspect that was like, what's something I can do that's actually radical. Now, you know, when you live in LA or San Francisco, New York city, you know, it, it might not seem as subversive, but the fact of the matter is there's so much cultural stigma still that porn stars have had their bank accounts closed. Um, just for being in porn, you can't use PayPal if you're a sex worker. Like you can't have a PayPal account, which is crazy. You can't uh, get certain jobs. You can get fired. There's relationship discrimination. There's all sorts of things that are still that really reveal what a sort of radical position it is in this culture to be a sex worker. And I'm not saying that every sex worker does it for those reasons. I don't think everybody's like you know joining the <laughs> the resistance by signing up to be in porn. But that still happens as a result of the way they live their lives no matter what and part of that i mean it's just it's absurd really i mean if you think about it the last movie you saw if there was a sex scene in it you saw everything except you know the penetration probably and so you know i just saw american honey and it's like shia labeouf is like pounding some girl and you see his butt and you see their naked bodies and you even see like a little splash of his dick for a second you know and it's like 
okay, that's not pornography. And so, you know, the difference between porn and, and all that legalization and, you know, or all those, like all that legislation and all that, like anti-porn stigma and job discrimination and all that kind of stuff. And a movie is like six inch. I'll be generous to him, maybe like eight inches, you know, (laughs) the difference between all the horrible things that happen to you and not, I mean, and that, that's crazy. You know, that's absolutely crazy. It's like, you know, the Janet Jackson nipple slip. It's like, what, like, that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars? Mm -hmm. You're kidding. (laughs) Um, If you want to know more about you, should we send them to your Twitter, your social media? Twitter is the best way. It's the only social media I have. So it's just at Connor Habib, C-O-N-N-E-R-H-A-B-I-B. And it's, I always say that, like, my tombstone will say, hashtag he was nicer in person. Because sometimes I'm a bombastic jerk on Twitter, just like everybody. But I am also very snuggly on there too at oh, times. Right, yeah. okay yeah. they've been forewarned it's okay <laughs> and you are very nice in person <laughs> thank you <y'all>. thank you <laughs> And that's our show. Big thanks to Connor for that. If you like our show, please subscribe, rank us five stars, and leave a comment on iTunes. It is one of the biggest ways that new people find our show. You can also sign up for our newsletter at lgbtqpodcast.com to stay up to date on all new episodes and live shows. Also, I want to mention that I'm doing AIDS Life Cycle this year, where I'll be cycling from San Francisco to Los Angeles to raise money for the life-saving services that the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and LA LGBT Center provides. If you want to, or are able to contribute, I would absolutely love that and every little bit counts. There are links in the show notes across all my social medias. Also, the direct link for that is to fighthiv.org slash go to slash jeffmasters1. I also love hearing your guest suggestions each week. Tweeting at me is the easiest way to do that. I tweet from at jeffmasters1. Special thanks to our partners at Panoply, our old home at AfterBuzz TV, the Elon University in Los Angeles studio, Jason McMurdy, and everyone for listening. We'll see you next week.